Welcome to Walk Without Rhythm, a Worcester variety show, a podcast dedicated to showcasing the voices, the music, the sounds of Worcester, Paris of the 80s, baby. Worcester's number one, Worcester, Worcester's Worcester, Worcester. On this episode, we'll be hearing the story of how Coney Island went from cash only to credit cards. We'll hear how a series of sounds inspired a young guitarist from Peru to pick up his life and eventually move to Worcester. And we'll bring the microphone out onto the street for a sound walk through a wintry day. My name is Solon, I'm your host. We may or may not have met before. It's very possible that I've served you hot dogs at none other than Worcester's own George's Coney Island or the Coney Island location at Polar Park. And if we haven't met before in person, then all you need to know is that I'm extremely handsome. No need to look me up, take my word for it. And the second thing you should know is that I am absolutely overjoyed that you tuned in to listen to this right now. I cherish this time that we'll be spending together and I'm going to try to make it a special thing for both of us. And I think you're going to like this episode, not just because I made it for you, but because I love the voices we'll be hearing from. I've been working with these pieces of audio for a while now, and if you're like me, while you're listening, you'll find yourself meditating on the following question. What's the difference between music and all the other sounds we hear day to day? Where's the line? You get what I'm saying? All music is sound, but not all sounds are music, right? It's kind of like that rectangle square thing you learned about in elementary school. And I think what we'll find as we go through our show is that music and sounds aren't as easy to differentiate as you may think. Part one, the musical nature of sounds. For our first story, we're going to turn to a familiar character to many people in Worcester. No, no, you can't. We're, we close the three today. I'm just here inside. That's Kathy from Coney Island. A little bit of personal disclosure here. She's also my mom. Isn't that so cool? Oh my God, that's so much fun. I wanted to bring her on here to tell the story of how Coney Island went from being a cash-only business to one that accepted both cash and cards. And you know, right off the bat, you might not see the connection between this story and our question about the line between music and sound. But hang in there and I think you'll see what I mean. If you've been to Coney Island, you know that things don't change much in there. The place was renovated in 1938 and pretty much looks the same as it did back then. Utilitarian art deco full of color and textures, metal and wood. And every change that does happen, whether it's a new trash receptacle or a different place to store the straws behind the counter, is usually a pretty drawn-out conversation between my mom, the rest of the family, and everyone who works there. At Coney Island, to get your hot dogs, we move pretty quick. But when it comes to change, we move slowly. And that's 
part of what makes Coney Island, Coney Island. I guess you can call it nostalgia or you can call it lots of different things. But for me, and I think customers have it too, it's a familiarity. It's a feeling of being of home. It's it's a certain comfort level. So it, it it's... It's the feeling of being here. It's the smells. It's the the sounds of the people. It's the clanging of the dishes. It's the, when there's a rush, there's the buzz of people. As important as the hot dogs are, what's equally as important is the atmosphere. And atmosphere isn't just something you can order from the Uline catalog. Atmosphere is comprised of the sights, the smells, the feeling of the cushion under your ass. And yes, it is also comprised of the sounds. The soundscape of Coney Island is musical. Let's just briefly go through the orchestra pit over here. Coins being counted and exchanged between hands. The doors of the wooden refrigerators behind the counter. The jostling of glass bottles of chocolate milk. Paper bags being opened. The glass plates clanging on the metal top of the steam table to get loaded with hot dogs. There have been times in here when, I don't know the science behind sound and crowds, but there's noise and people are talking and yelling and then all of a sudden there's a lull and you're very aware of that lull. Like all of a sudden it's just a little bit of a, a lower buzz, you know? But when, when we're busy here, that, that sound of somebody screaming out the orders and somebody yelling out cheeseburger and, and you know, all those, all those wonderful sounds, the jukebox, um, three or four customers placing their order at once and we're yelling out the orders. I think that's a really, really special thing about Coney Island. All these individual components add up to an unmistakable atmosphere. And if you change one of those components, you run the risk of messing with the atmosphere that keeps people coming through the doors day after day, decade after decade. So, of course, a change as big as going from being cash only to accepting credit cards was going to be a widely discussed and debated issue. In fact, it was so contentious among my family that when my mom finally made the decision to switch in late 2019, she kept it as a secret from her father. My father, who was pretty old at the time and had always said to me, you know, over my dead body, are we going to start taking credit cards and are you going to do that? And I said, okay, fine. And I still decided to do it and didn't tell him until one day we were in a doctor's office together. And the, it was such a big deal that we switched over that there was an article about it in the Telegram and Gazette. Quick side note, that was my mom's ringtone. She's had it for as long as I can remember, and I find it so stress-inducing. But anyway, uh, the, the, the doctor's office. okay. So I was I was in the doctor's uh, a doctor's appointment with my dad when the doctor came running over because he had seen an article about it in the Telegram that morning and said, "Wow, I, I see that you're taking credit cards now. That's great news." My dad just looked at me. And that's how he found out. Of course, he was too old at that point to really do anything to me. But it was kind of a funny encounter that that's how he found out. And I was a little, I suppose, sneaky about not telling him. But I didn't want to, um, I, I didn't want to upset him. Yet I thought it was an important decision to make. So we made the switch from the old mechanical cash registers to the new touchscreen computer ones. And a few weeks after we swapped them out, I took a look at the old unused machines and I asked my mom what we should do with them. I said I could bring them to the recycling center or to Dan at Westerman's who rents out props for movies and could probably use a functioning old-timey cash register. But instead, she instructed me to take the old cash registers and put them on a shelf in the back room just in case the new ones broke down and we needed to go back to the old ones. But luckily, it never came to that. 
After a century of being cash only, Coney Island has gone for three years now accepting cash and cards. Just not American Express. And it's been a good thing. It was a huge, huge change to switch over to that system because we had been doing the old registers for, you know, 90, 100 years. However, we did do it in August before COVID, so in 2019. And I've said since then, I think the angels were looking down on us because had we not done it before COVID, we would not have been able to stay in business. You might remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this period where we were unsure whether it was safe to be handing cash back and forth with people. So by accepting credit cards, we were able to accept online orders and orders where you paid over the phone. With all those things coming out of nowhere, it was an extraordinarily serendipitous decision to make that change back in late 2019. And even though it was a good decision, the point I want to make here, and the whole reason I bring this story up, is that something else changed at Coney Island. As we parted ways with the old cash registers, we also parted ways with the sounds of that machine. It may not sound like much, but just give it a listen. Where'd you get that from? That's from, it was in the back. Wow. Do you remember you, um, you had me put it on this shelf up high? Really? But I thought, <gasps> see? Isn't that so cool? Oh my God, that's so much fun. And actually, I have to say, well, I'm a little rusty. I'm much faster on an old register than I am on the POS because the POS, I have to look for the soda. I have to press whether it's grape or ginger ale or what kind of chips or it, it's daunting. With the old cash registers, there was a sense of control in the hands of the server. The machine didn't know how much everything cost. You did. You want to add 10 cents to this guy's bill because he said something rude to you? Who's going to notice? And with the beeping, the customers could hear you thinking about tallying up their bill in real time. Hot dogs, drinks, chips, mac and cheese, subtotal, total. But in the end, we had to say goodbye to those sounds and everything they signified and all the rhythms they produced through the course of taking a customer's order. Now, the sound of a Coney Island cash register is the same dull thumping that you get when you tap your phone. But nevertheless, business carries on. Coney Island's atmosphere could withstand that small change. And I think that one lesson that my mom and I have taken from everything that we've all been through over the last few years is that there are some sounds that are integral to the music of a place like Coney Island. A cash register can change, and it doesn't change Coney Island. But in particular, there's one sound that Coney Island can't do without. One of the things I guess I would add, if you just to think it in, is when Coney Island, I don't know, it's, it sounds weird, but it's made to have, it almost makes me cry as I say it, but it's made to have people in it, right? And when we had COVID and we were closed to customers, it was so lonely. It was empty and it was void of life and, and love. And when people could start coming back in again and, and we heard, you could hear that buzz and you're here with that buzz. I think that's what Coney Island is really... That's what we're meant to be. That's why we're here. <laughs> oh, Is it true, though? It's true, yeah. Yeah. It's
Part two, the call of music. What would you say to somebody who would say there's music in the way people talk, the way that their voice goes up and down? Yes, we can find music. I would say the poetry of music in any sound. That's the voice of Carlos Odria. I first learned about Carlos while scrolling through Instagram in the spring of 2021. Amid the memes and personalized ads, I came across this video. It's the view from a stage where a concert is underway. You see the backs of two musicians, and the audience is seated in what appear to be school cafeteria tables in a converted gymnasium. The concert was taking place at a vaccination site, as a special treat for the people waiting those 10 to 15 minutes after receiving their dose. I could hear the sound of the audience in the background, and I was enamored by the video. I even teared up a little bit because I realized that even though I was just staring at a teeny little screen, this was the closest thing I'd experienced to a live concert in about a year. You know, uh, in my own experience as, as a listener and as a listener musician, right? Whenever I go to a place where there is live music being performed, it just makes me happier. Carlos is a Worcester-based musician and ethnomusicologist, which means that not only does he make beautiful music, but he can also speak beautifully on the intersection of music and culture. You may have heard him at Val's Restaurant or Mechanics Hall, or perhaps you've taken one of his classes at Worcester State. We're going to hear parts of a conversation Carlos and I had about the nature of music. But before we do that, I want you to hear a little about how he became a musician in the first place, against some pretty unlikely odds. And the origins of that story bring us to a night on a beach outside of Lima, Peru. It was a Friday or Saturday night, something like that. I was with my friends from high school. My friend had a very cool house next to the beach, south from Lima. Uh, it's a beach Villa. So we, we uh, stayed there overnight. We were, I think, 12. We camped outside. It, I think it was, it was winter time, but winter, winter is not that uh, harsh mm -hmm. in Lima. Uh, yeah. So we camped outside. We had some fire going on, and we were just having fun doing crazy things that, you know, uh, kids that age do. We were running the beach, we were getting us talking about girls. They're just kids doing kid stuff, and they're hanging around a fire. And that's when Carlos hears a sound that changes the course of his life. Is Morning of Carnival. It's the opening track from the album El Rio 
by the Carlos Odria Trio. But back then, it was the sound of a friend playing the guitar on a beach. I was like, wow, I never had someone playing the guitar in front of me at that age. I think that somehow the instrument called me, or not only the instrument, but the generations and generations of guitar players who have used that instrument. Somehow I felt attracted to that legacy ingrained in the sound of this instrument. The next day, I came back home. I asked for a guitar for my birthday. Started to ask my dad for a guitar. I want a guitar. I went to take lessons, blah, blah, blah. And my dad didn't believe me. Nobody in Carlos's immediate or extended family played any instruments. But his dad gave him a guitar for his birthday, and his uncle chipped in for lessons. And when it came time for Carlos to begin high school, he attended a guitar academy in Lima. It happened to be that this academy was run by who is now considered the most important Peruvian guitarist in the country, whose name is Pepe Torres. So Pepe Torres had this balance between folk music, popular music from Peru, and classical guitar. Carlos attended this academy for three years, and in other circumstances, he would have been poised to start a career in music. But the economic and political climate at the time in Peru wouldn't allow for such a path. So just as he's beginning his adulthood, he puts down the guitar. In the early 2000s, those were the years the Shining Path terrorist movement was engulfed in a civil war, basically, with the government. So... There was a brutal violence you know, in the streets every day, and I kind of witnessed all, all that. 70,000 people died in the war, uh, and the economy was in ruins, uh, no prospects for jobs of any kind. So <clears throat> the music career was kind of a joke, really, to think about a, a music career in, in, in Peru at that time. He was trying to find his path. First he tried law, then psychology. But nothing was calling to him the way that guitar called to him on that night at the beach. And even though he had stopped playing music... I remain an avid listener. That's something that I never drop. I start to listen to a radio show that was aired every Thursday uh, around 10 p.m. I still remember because it was like a, it was a big thing. It was uh, about jazz in which he will play the classics, you know, Charlie Parker, John Coltrane, Hugh Kellington, and he will tell the stories of, of these musicians, their struggles, their creativity, in a very compelling and poetic way. I was amazed. And when he stressed that most of the music that he was playing acquired its essence and its power through improvisation, that kind of really changed my, my view about music. Up until that point, Carlos had been trained in classical and folk music. So it was this idea of improvisation that inspired Carlos when he was at a house party and a friend started to play the piano. And there was a guitar somewhere there. I, I don't know. I think it was the owner of the house had uh, several instruments there. So I took the guitar, 
which I hadn't played in two years, and he started just jamming with, with my friend Jaime. And he kind of looked at me and, and saw that I was playing, and we started to play a riff together, and then my hands were stiff, you know, after two years mm-hmm. of not touching the instrument. But I felt, I felt that, that flow and that passion uh, that I experienced when I was 11 years old, and I got involved with the instrument for the first time. So that kind of call, that energy uh, came to me at that time. And that's, I think that's the moment really that, which marked my return to music and my decision to migrate to the U.S. You know, I think that's the moment in which I thought, oh, this is really what I, 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 I need to do to pursue a, a creative career, uh, to do something, you know, with all that, um, all that passion for beauty that I had. I wanted to create beautiful things. And continuing in that spirit of improvisation, Carlos came to the U.S. So I came to the U.S. uh, without any plans, but just to see if I could make it as a musician, right? And I brought uh, 150 bucks with me, and that's it. I I didn't bring a guitar, you know, because I didn't have a a guitar at that moment. Somehow, I managed to become a student, an international student. And not only that, he eventually earned his PhD in musicology, which means two things. First, we can call him doctor. And second... It means that he's very well positioned to help enlighten us as we work through this question of where the line is between music and sound. If you want to go to the, the most condensed and succinct definition of music, I will say music is human behavior within the community. This is an idea that stems from Alan Merriam, one of the foundational writers in the academic study of ethnomusicology. And without getting too far into the details, I really like this idea. Because it inspires me to think of everything from the way your footsteps are hitting the ground to the way you say hello to a passerby as part of a grand musical orchestra. We can find music, uh, and I will say the poetry of music in any sound, in any combination of sounds, in any ecosystem of sounds, we can intuitively uh, perceive the poetry of, 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 of sounds. When you think about these things, it's sometimes very hard to, you know, kind of keep your brain open to these very open definitions. But that's, I think, how the world functions, you know. Uh, we always, you know, human beings make an effort to synthesize things, to define things, to name things, but in reality, everything is flux, everything changes. I think there's a natural response when someone presents you with an unusual idea, such as there's music in the way you make a cup of coffee. That's not music. Music is something played on the radio or something I can dance to. But Carlos warned against that reaction. And and to say, oh, this is not music. And why is not music? Because I can't understand it or because I cannot 
get any sort of emotional information out of my listening experience, right? That is the denial approach, which I think is unhealthy. As you know, uh, with any spoken language, we can learn ways to to decipher the beauty uh, of of these sounds and systems, and to maybe understand at a, at a much deeper level why certain musicians combine sounds in certain ways. Why? What kind of things are they trying to convey and express? So these things can be learned. Forgive me if what I'm about to say sounds too dreamy or theoretical, but this is what happens when a guy who sells hot dogs talks to an ethnomusicologist. And to me, it comes to a pretty non-controversial idea that we can learn about the world around us through sound. And if we take what we know about music, the patterns and the harmonies, we can achieve a richer understanding of the systems that make those sounds. We can better understand the collective human song. It's possible to learn how to, to enjoy this music by exploring how the music is built, which is basically the, the ethnomusicological approach. You learn how musicians start from scratch, how they they create their music, uh, what sort of extra musical elements are involved, social, cultural, religious, political, all these things, you know, uh, are kind of enmeshed when creating music. And if we learn and if we explore about uh, uh, the reason why these ingredients have, have been combined in a certain way, we can definitely, you know, learn to appreciate this music. I don't believe that uh, music is an abstract kind of artistic expression or, or that sound should be idealized as, as, as something almost immaterial, right? Uh, I think that this, the listening experience is connected to the, the body, to movement, and to how the body reacts to sound. Part three, can I hear the music and the sounds all around me? If I try really hard? All right, I'm out here recording uh, on the sidewalk in Worcester because I wanted to do a little experiment of sorts. Uh, after thinking on this idea of music in everyday life, I wanted to try to hear it and see uh, what song I heard, you know? So I'll just kind of stand still for a moment and try to count some of the sounds I can hear around me. I just put on a glove. 
a truck's about to go by. I think in the distance, somebody is shoveling or maybe trying to break up the ice on their driveway or sidewalk. I heard a few chirps. Oh, and then from another direction, I hear another person shoveling. The most notable sound when I'm out here walking is a self-made sound. It's the sound of my feet. And uh, due to the weather today, it's sounding different than it would uh, at another time of year. There's a little bit of a crunch beneath me. That's because of the ice and snow on the sidewalks. Not sure if that's a sound that will uh, be around in a, a few decades. And then, oh. A little precarious to hold my phone, like, you know, in the sewer, but. That's what that was. I almost fell. I see bunny prints in the snow. I'm not sure if you can hear it on the mic, but there's kind of a low buzzing behind the sounds of the birds. Can you hear? Let's try to see what that is. I tried to bring myself closer to the source of the sound, and no matter which way I turned, it seemed to get louder. I wish I could explain it. I wish I could tell you what I heard out in that walk. You live in a time where reason clutches on rhyme, and everyone's a killer in their way. But don't let it dishearten you fun's about to start and it's up to you to find it in every day the world might seem disconnected but listen close you can detect there is a beat underneath what you see feel through me the connection between Cause when you walk with me When you talk with me It is impossible to talk without singing Impossible to move without dancing Impossible to cry without knowing the joys in life It is impossible to walk without Rhythm All right, my friend, that is the show. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. 
please share with friends, family, coworkers, anyone you think who might like it. Giving the show a rating also helps people find the podcast feed, so please go ahead and do that. Thank you to Kathy, my mom, for lending her voice, and thank you to Carlos Odria, whose music you're listening to right now. This is a festahar from The Party Is Here. You can check out more of Carlos's music and performance dates at carlosodria.com. I also want to thank my family and everyone at Coney Island for supporting me and encouraging me to make this show. Walk Without Rhythm is brought to you in part by a grant from the Worcester Arts Council and the Mass Cultural Council. And if you and me are already connected online, please text or DM with feedback about this episode. And if you don't know how to contact me, you can email me at solonsounds.com. You can find that email as well as a bunch of information about the show in the episode notes. Once again, thank you for listening. Peace. Peace.